This is an ABC podcast. Just a warning before we start. This episode contains some strong language and intense material. We rarely hear from killers, especially not those who are involved in Melbourne's notorious gangland war. Hello. Hello, how are you? Good, how are you? That's good. But recently, my reporting partner on this project, Josie Taylor, found herself sitting in the lounge room of a killer from that war. Everything's working. We wanted to hear his story. So, I'm not going to call you by your name. For legal reasons, we can't use his name. We're going to call him Oliver. Tell me how, what was your upbringing like? Well, I came from a pretty large family. Dad had a bit of a drinking problem. I ended up running away from home. Went to the boys' home, I was made a ward of the state. And um, from there, I got fostered out. Turned out to some of the biggest drug dealers in Australia. You're joking? No. Started living there with them, and um, they sat us down and told us what they were up to. And uh, basically, we were like their little gophers. Helping them make the foils up, fill bags. Hide, hide money. What were they doing? Heroin. Hmm. Basically, I knew no better in the end. By the time they finished with me, I knew no better. Oliver graduated from heroin gopher to running his own business. At marijuana, I started um, buying and selling hundreds of pounds of marijuana. He ended up with his own gang. I was the head of my own crew. Basically, I mean, you know, there's no difference to being a CEO of a normal company or, you know, like... I called the shots, so I looked after the crew, and, you know, they done right by me, you know. He says it wasn't an easy job. People think, you know, it's easy money. It's bullshit. It's not easy money at all. And look, it, it takes its toll on you. You've actually got to be mentally strong. I mean, really mentally strong. You know, I mean, look, your life can change in a split second. Eventually, Oliver would be convicted for shooting someone. Self-defence, he says. We can't go into the details for legal reasons. You're always sleeping with one eye open or always got your eyes not on the road on a rearview mirror. But even before that, he'd been in and out of jail on drugs charges. Young, dumb and full of cum, you know what I mean? Like, that, that was me. I didn't give a shit, you know what I mean? Like, going to jail was paying taxes, you know? Like, it didn't bother me. And that's how he crossed paths with Nicola Gobbo. Because I tell you what, she was a bloody good barrister. She was a bloody good barrister. Very switched up, you know, um, and at the time I felt trustworthy. I felt comfortable with it, you know. I was never on my guard. I was never on my guard with Nicola. But maybe he should have been. This is season two of Trace, The Informer. I'm Rachel Brown. In the early 2000s, Victoria was in the grip of a drug war. Melbourne's rival gangs were fighting for supremacy and the violence was spiralling out of control. The heart of the gangland war, you know, murders went from murders in dark alleys to bullets in broad daylight. What was it like working as a defence barrister in that era? Unbelievable. I had, before that period of time, never acted for anybody who was murdered within days of speaking to me. It was so it was, um, 
surreal in a way. Nicola Gobbo found herself representing notorious drug dealers and murderers whose names would be etched into Victoria's history books. It was a terribly dangerous time. The streets were washed with blood. As the gangland war became more intense, she'd come under pressure to do more than just represent gang members in court. And they both laughed and said, you're part of our crew. We thought she was a close associate, way beyond what we would expect from a normal lawyer-client relationship. The assumption would be made that I was a party to their conspiracy or their murders. This is episode two, One of the Crew. Nicola Gobbo had briefly dabbled with informing as a fledgling lawyer, secretly feeding information to police about her drug-dealing boyfriend. But that was then. Once her career was established, she was working long days, just like any lawyer would, trying to get her clients out of jail, get them bail. And as the gangland war started to ramp up, she wasn't short of clients. Oliver was one of them. She met him when he was busted with a whole lot of weed. I was charged with some marijuana and she was hired to do some court appearances. That wasn't his only problem. Some of the people charged over the drug deal were cops. That's right, cops. In the early 2000s, quite a few cops were caught dealing big quantities of drugs. They tried to pass it off as undercover policing, but really it was a rot within the police. Some corrupt cops were actually involved in the drug trade. And Victoria Police was determined to weed out the corruption in its ranks. They were investigating whether there were corrupt cops involved in Oliver's drug bust. So Oliver says he was offered a deal. He'd get favourable treatment, but only if he turned on the cops he was charged with. They didn't want me. From the start they said, we don't want you. They wanted the co-accused. Oliver felt he was in good hands with Nicola Gobbo as his lawyer. But she had a secret. Nicola was sleeping with one of these cops. One of the guys charged alongside Oliver. One of the guys Oliver was being asked to turn on. I had no idea. I had no idea. Did you know she was friendly with them? I was shocked. I used to defend Nicola even in jail. I said, look, shut your mouth. I go, you know, I go, I like her. I go, so if you're going to bag her, don't bag her in front of me. I go, otherwise, it's going to be on. And this is what hurts as much as it does, right? Because she used to come, right? She used to send me in a visit, so they kiss me on the cheek. I was like, how are you, man? Then to cop this, it's like the ultimate betrayal. The point is, Nicola's private life had the potential to jeopardise Oliver's case. How could Oliver get the best legal advice when his best option might have been to dob in the person that his lawyer was sleeping with? For Nicola, this was a massive conflict of interest. Aside from the potential legal problems, it just seems like ethically a situation a lawyer just should not be in. But incredibly, this wouldn't be the last time Nicola was involved in a situation like this. In fact, it's almost like this sets the template for the rest of her career as a lawyer. She's been accused of conflict of interest after conflict of interest. I don't hate her. I'm disappointed in her. Anyway, look, it is what it is. She needs to live with it. She needs to live with it.
Nicola says she protected her client's interests. She never discouraged Oliver from giving evidence, and she says she never told the cop anything about what Oliver was planning to do. In the end, Oliver says he was never going to cooperate with police anyway. I was never going to give evidence. Tell me about that, because you said you were. Yeah, I said I was. I was never going to. It was never going to happen. Oliver stayed staunch, as they say, kept his mouth shut. He refused to give evidence. The cops were cleared, acquitted on all charges, and Oliver served out his jail time for the shooting. Now, Oliver says he's done with life as a criminal, wants no part of it anymore. He's tired of looking over his shoulder, tired of all the double dealing. Yeah, rehabilitation doesn't come from courses or this or that. It's when you've had enough. Even though he killed someone, he says he's been able to get away from that life, start again. But Nicola Gobbo never escaped that world. She'd go on to do work for people far more powerful than Oliver. She was about to start working on cases for some of the biggest names in Melbourne's underworld. Word was spreading among criminals that Nicola Gobbo could be useful if you wanted to win bail. Someone who could keep you out of jail while you waited for your trial. Someone who was just good at unravelling police briefs and pointing out the weaknesses. The way she tells it, it's almost like she was the bail application queen. In 02, 03, 204, any high profile or high level drug trafficker that they arrested either had my phone number in his phone at the time of his arrest or opted to ring me and ultimately, I, I think, 90% of my practice was bail applications and committal proceedings. Then in 2002, on Valentine's Day, she started acting for a new client. It was a job that would change the course of her life. The client's name was Tony Mockbell. Tony was well-groomed, stocky, with a balding head and a round face that always had the flicker of a vague smile, even at court like things were going his way. Like Nicola, he lost his dad early, at 15. That and other rough parts of his childhood left him with a bad temper and a feeling of being dirty on the world. He started out as a pizza cook, but his business empire grew to include racehorses, property, investments, and even a Versace store. He had a certain swagger, an air of untouchability. Because of the way I look at it, no one's perfect. Whether they've done right or wrong in life, no one's perfect. They haven't got a chip in me or you or whatever. Tell us what's right and what's wrong. Don't your dad's told us what's right and what's wrong. In this rare tape of Tony Mockbell's voice, he's being secretly recorded as he chats with detectives. He tells the boys in blue if they need fashion help, he can hook them up. I saw you at Versace class. Yeah. Can we dress you guys? Hey, <laughs> mate, I don't think you can do anything with me. I'm pretty well made. I'm beyond redemption. <laughs> But Tony isn't just joking around with the cops. This tape shows the kind of power he felt he had in Melbourne. You can hear him attempt to negotiate with the force. He actually tries to broker a deal between criminals and cops. He says some of his crew who'd been busted could agree to reduced sentences, just do a little bit of jail time. That way, everyone would save on legal costs. So if we're in there, we're in there, you know what I mean? Like... We're going to do a little bit of time and leave the streets to you. So this way here, he saves like 
maybe two or three years of bloody court costs when you look at between everybody's cases. The police didn't go for the deal. In their eyes, Tony Mockbell was the mastermind behind a big chunk of Melbourne's drug trade, an empire that fuelled the ecstasy explosion in the nightclub scene in the early 2000s. In 2001, he was charged over a massive haul of ingredients used to make drugs like speed. Detectives seized a container abandoned on the Melbourne docks. Secreted in a consignment of tiles was 550 kilograms of ephedrine. Police allege it could have been used to make 40 million ecstasy tablets worth $2 billion. Police raided his properties, seizing the lot, including his precious Ferrari. Luxury cars, homes and businesses are among $15 million worth of assets police allege were bought with profits from a multi-billion dollar racket. Tony had already tried to get bailed twice and failed. He was hoping for third time lucky. And that's where Nicola Gobbo came in. This third time, Nicola and a senior colleague were working on the case. They presented an interesting argument. They told the court that corruption issues within the police, the rot I mentioned earlier, would create an unacceptable delay in his case. It worked. Tony got bail. For the moment, at least, he was free. So Nicola helped keep him out of jail and in business. Her business was also growing. And, of course, getting Tony Mockbell bail after two failed attempts and exposing corrupt police assisted in building that reputation. Nicola Gobbo told the Royal Commission she grew closer to the Mockbell family as she worked on the case. What eventually came about was a weekly uh, early dinnertime catch-up with his brothers. These dinners were often at a Japanese restaurant. Nicola says she agreed to meet up with them like this just so she could keep them up to date. Otherwise I was being driven insane with, you know, each person from his family or his extended family ringing and asking the same questions. To her, these clients were her paycheck, but given the hours she was pulling, being on call for them 24-7, they were also becoming a big part of her social life. It seems like there was some part of Tony Mockbell that Nicola found likeable, despite his reputation. One of the things that was said in the Royal Commission about Tony Mockbell was that he once threatened and said, if you ever inform on my family, I'll kill your kids in front of you and you'll have to watch and then I'll kill you. I don't agree with, as an example, Tony Mockbell. I think, I mean, I know for a fact that he had the opportunity and the, probably the capacity, if not directly, at least indirectly, to have a person who became an informer, or actually more than one, um, murdered, and he chose not to. A lot about Tony Mockbell is, or was, talk rather than action. Nicola's often quick to defend Tony Mockbell one of the few left standing after the long and bloody underworld war. Even at the Royal Commission, she pointed out that Tony had a good side. Why would you ever have wanted to be friends with Tony Mockbell? I wouldn't say friends, but like every person, he, he does have some redeeming features. To Nicola, in the struggle between good and evil, no person is just one thing. In 2002, Tony Mockbell introduced Nicola to someone far more volatile, another of the guys in the same gang, Carl Williams. I have got a recollection of Tony introducing me to Carl or pointing Carl out to me um, at Port Phillip Prison 
during a visit. Carl Williams was a baby-faced drug dealer in his early 30s who was fast becoming one of the biggest names in Melbourne's underworld. My co-reporter Josie Taylor spent a good part of her 20s following this guy in and out of court. Carl was definitely a presence up at court and he was, unlike a lot of criminals who would attend court, he would engage with the media and say g'day and he seemed like just any other bloke happily walking into court with his tracksuit on. He seemed like someone you might just see down at the food court scoffing KFC. Did he have an entourage? Often he would be in the presence of a young, shortish man called Andrew Benji Venyaman, who was his good mate and bodyguard. I think the last time I saw him at court, he was wearing a black mesh T-shirt, which showed off his physique, which he was obviously proud of, and his distinctive black tattoos up and down his arms. And he was always stuck close to Carl. Police believed he was so dangerous, they were actually warned that it was a belief that he would not hesitate to fire upon police if he was under threat and that he often carried a firearm, in fact, almost always carried a firearm. And he was under investigation um, before he died for a number of murders, I believe up to six or seven murders he was investigated for um, in Melbourne's gangland war. For better or worse, Carl Williams and Benji Venyaman would become part of Nicola's life. Just like Nicola socialised with Tony Mockbell's family, she also caught up with Carl Williams and his dad. But she says it was never off the clock. A couple of occasions that I can recall where I met them for coffee during the daytime, but never, I don't recall uh, any kind of evening or nothing like nightclubs and that sort of thing that they were doing with other other lawyers. Nicola told me that Carl wasn't a threat if you knew your place. I think any psychopath or anyone who, say, use Carl Williams as an example, they are obviously dangerous people, but don't necessarily present as a danger to people who they believe are on their side. And this is exactly what riled the police. Crooks thought they were running the show. Carl Williams called himself the Premier. Tony Mockbell's nickname was Lord Mayor. Detectives spent years chasing these guys, listening to their intercepted phones, trying to freeze their assets. One of those detectives was Stuart Bateson. Mr Bateson, is your full name Stuart David Bateson? Yes. He was part of Task Force Piranha, set up to investigate the mounting murders of the underworld's drug war. Detective Bateson was the poster boy of Piranha, experienced, articulate, handsome and dogged in his pursuit of his gangland targets. But he once told me that even he was scared of those targets. He was scared by their belief in their own power, their assumption they could act with impunity, their total disregard for the consequences. And because Nicola Gobbo was working to keep the gang members out of jail, Detective Bateson told the Royal Commission she was seen as part of the problem. There was a small group of criminal lawyers that we believe that they were actually part of the criminal enterprise, that they were facilitating some of that activity. She was a thorn in the side of police. Providing advice to get around bail applications, subpoena arguments, discovering informers, acting outside uh, what I would have thought would be proper conduct from a, from a legal practitioner, and she was one of that group. Nicola told me that they disliked her just because she was doing her job. I wasn't doing anything 
at all illegal or even unlawful in terms of getting people out on bail, but a number of police over that period of time made disparaging remarks to my face and behind my back along the lines of if they could eliminate me, they would be happy to do so because I was such, presumably because I was so successful at getting people out of custody. But cops like Detective Bateson thought she was getting way too close. We thought she was a close associate, uh, way beyond what we would expect from a normal uh, lawyer-client uh, relationship. Nicola says as far as she was concerned, she had no allegiances. Despite the weekly dinners with the Mockbell family, coffees with the Williams family, the way she saw it, no-one owned her, and she didn't owe anyone anything. But it wasn't just the cops who assumed that Nicola had chosen a team. Carl Williams and Tony Mockbell were starting to get the same idea. Did you see yourself as part of their crew? Um, I didn't, but, um, but I can see how they would have. Or, in, you know, in retrospect, I can see how they would have. Just as Nicola was starting to get sucked into the orbit of Tony Mockbell and Carl Williams, Melbourne's gangland war really took off. The biggest feud at this time involved two duelling factions. In one corner, the Carl Williams and Tony Mockbell crew. In the other, the Moran family. Years ago, a Moran family member had shot Carl Williams in the stomach on his 29th birthday. Carl hadn't forgotten. He was just biding his time. Then one day, in mid-2003, at a local football match, two of the Moran crew were murdered in broad daylight. It was a murder so brutal, it changed everything. The violence that marks payback in the underworld took a savage turn during the weekend when an infamous Melbourne crime figure was shot dead in front of his children. The kids had just run off the footy oval. They watched on helpless from the back of their minivan as their father, Jason Moran, was killed along with his bodyguard in the front seat. There were people running everywhere. It was just everyone had sort of lost it. It's unbelievable. A lot of them were uh, very traumatised. They, you know, lots of tears and uh, you know, shaking and that sort of thing. It didn't take a genius to work out that Carl Williams might be responsible, and four years down the track, he'd be convicted of planning the hit. His crew had unleashed a new kind of violence, and these were the people Nicola Gobbo was doing work for and, in the view of the police, getting far too close to. She was keeping dangerous company. What Nicola did next is kind of amazing. She started working for Carl's enemies. That guy who'd been shot in the van, his dad, Louis Moran, needed a lawyer. He was up on drugs charges. And Nicola saw no reason to turn the case down. In fact, barristers aren't supposed to reject cases. If they're available and a client is willing to pay, they're not supposed to pick and choose. It's called the cab rank rule. But when Carl Williams and Tony Mockbell heard Nicola would be working for the Morans, they were not happy. I was confronted with a situation where I was told by Carl Williams and Tony Mockbell, under no circumstances was I to act for Lewis Moran or to get him bail. She tried to tell them. She had to take the next work that came her way. And they both laughed and said, you're part of our crew, you are not doing his bail application. 
and they warned me not to and said there would be consequences. She went ahead and worked for the patriarch of the Moran crew on the quiet. Ultimately, I thought that I could, um, I mean, it sounds pathetic, but I thought that I could um, do it almost behind their backs by being the junior to a QC who was Lewis Moran's preferred barrister at the time. But on the day of his bail application, the QC um, telephoned me that morning and said that he couldn't come and that I'd have to do it myself. So, but he, but he did say to me, don't worry about it because he won't, there's no way he'll get bail. Um, so just do it as a practice run. Nicola stood up in court and argued that Lewis Moran should be freed on bail so he could be a father figure and role model to his grandkids, the ones who watched their father get peppered with bullets in that minivan. Of course, I did get in bail and it was front page news um, and headlines that night. And within days, I had a visit from Andrew Veneman. That's the guy they call Benji, Andrew Veneman, Carl's right-hand man. I had him turn up on my doorstep at my house, threatening to kill me. She was warned. Carl isn't happy with you. You're a fucking dog. You are part of the Williams slash Mockbell crew and how dare you do or say anything that advances the cause of anyone not within our crew. The crew must have decided that it was better to draw Nicola closer to them instead of harming her or cutting her loose. It seemed like they'd patched things up because a few months later, Nicola was working for Carl Williams again. Carl had been caught on a listening device threatening to kill that detective you heard from earlier, Stuart Bateson. The charges were serious. Nicola worked on his bail application, and Carl got bail. And he was in a celebratory mood. For now, he'd avoided jail. And so far, he'd got away with murdering his enemies in front of their kids in broad daylight. Days after that bail hearing, he threw a big party at Crown Casino for the christening of his daughter, Dakota... Little Dakota wore a $4,000 dress. She received more than $70,000 in cash gifts. Pop singer Vanessa Amorosi performed, and one of the guests was Nicola Gobbo. I was present on a table with five other lawyers. I guess they didn't, um, they didn't have a photograph of them leaked to the Herald Sun like I did. Nicola was photographed standing between Carl Williams and his standover man, Benji Benjamin, the guy who recently, you know, just threatened to kill her. Carl almost looks young enough to be a schoolboy. He has blonde highlights and spiky short hair that frames his chubby face. He has his arm around Nicola, and he wears the kind of grin of someone who's just got out of jail, which he had, on bail. Partly thanks to Nicola. Nicola's smiling, drink in hand, wearing a bright pink dress with her bleached blonde hair piled high on her head in a bum. If Nicola wanted to be seen as impartial and independent, attending this party wasn't doing her any favours. But then she took it one step further. And what she did was caught on camera forever. Nicola Gobbo got up on stage, took a microphone and made a speech... Footage of the speech ended up on the Channel 9 program, A Current Affair, and it shows just how close Nicola had become to Carl Williams and his empire. 
I've been asked to make a special thank you, and a special thank you that Carl could be with us all tonight. At this point in the footage, she raises her glass in a mock toast to the police. You can say three cheers. No, you can. You can. Three, three, three cheers. And she name-checks the very detective Carl was charged with threatening to kill, Stuart Bateson. To the boys of Piranha, and in particular Stuart. The police felt like they were fast losing control of the streets. They were being mocked by criminals and mocked by the criminals' lawyers. After the murders at the kids' footy match, the very morning after, the Chief Commissioner called in everyone and told them they needed to do better. Bullets normally reserved for midnight hours were now whizzing by children playing sport. The murders signified a seismic shift. When Maureen was blown away, there were three little boys sitting in the back of the car and he was shot dead in front of them. One senior police officer, Terry Purton, told the Royal Commission how worried police were at the time. So it was a terribly dangerous time. The streets were washed with blood and sometimes these were occurring on a daily basis and we were desperate to try and stem the flow of murders and to protect the community. And the other thing is that these people with their empire of drugs, no one has been able to measure the number of people that have lost their lives through the the tens or hundreds of millions of dollars worth of drugs that have been manufactured by them. So Piranha was given more money, more staff and unprecedented new powers. Police gave me the impression that they had um, an almost an unlimited budget, that there was nothing that they couldn't do. They just needed to find a way to break the criminals' code of silence. They needed to find a chink in this age-old code. And soon, they would, with a bit of help from Nicola Gobbo. The criminal code of silence is like a big damn wall holding back a tide of information. If every brick holds strong, you've got nothing. But if you can create just one small crack, it can turn into a flood. If you can get one person to talk, more people might talk. For the Piranha Task Force, finding that first person was the hardest. Then one day in 2003, they had a breakthrough and ended up recording a murder. You can hear someone leave the car. Then gunshots ring out. Get in, get down. The hit had been caught on tape. Stay down. Stay down. Someone involved in this murder plot was arrested soon after. We're going to call him the hitman because he played a part in this hit. The hitman knew the evidence against him was overwhelming. He knew there was a big chance he'd be convicted. So he knew one of his best options was to dob in the guy who ordered the hit. And that guy was Carl Williams. Carl was worried that the hitman would tell the police everything. Roll, as they say. But of course, Carl had a plan to deal with him. A plan that involved Nicola Gobbo. I was dealing with an incredible amount of pressure largely brought about by Carl Williams and their entourage to fundamentally to ensure that not turn on Carl and not give evidence. We've beeped out the hitman's name for legal reasons. She says they wanted her to go and see the hitman and ensure he didn't make a statement. Nicola took on the hitman as her client 
She knew that her professional obligation as a lawyer was to act in his best interests and offer him all the options. But the crew couldn't let that happen. If the hitman insisted on testifying, they said Nicholas should arrange for a psychiatrist to rule that he was insane. They were actively seeking that I pervert the course of justice and break the law by misrepresenting that accused and by stitching him up in a way that if he ever decided to give evidence, that his evidence would be worthless. If she did what they were asking, really, she'd be one of them. A full-time, signed-up member of a criminal gang. Instead, she says the pressure made her more intent on helping the hitman in the way that any normal lawyer would do. And I suppose in a way that made me more determined, not necessarily determined, but made me more alive to or cognizant of trying to ensure that he knew what all his alternatives were. You'd think maybe she would just walk away. But she says that would have been a big red flag, that the hitman was about to defect from his crew. That was the huge problem. In stepping away, it would have been obvious what that person was doing. Because in order to walk away, you need to give some reason to your client, as in, I'm sorry, I can't appear for you because I have a conflict. If she stepped away, Carl might realise the hitman was about to turn on him. And the hitman might find himself in a coffin rather than a court. Nicola told the Royal Commission that around this time, she was also starting to worry about her reputation. I was also concerned that the, um, the way in which these people were talking over intercepted phones, the assumption would be made that I was a party to their conspiracy or their murders. The gang saw her as one of them, and she knew the cops now saw her as a member of that gang too. That detective she'd mocked in her speech at the Crown Casino party, Stuart Bateson, he thought she was a stooge, not a proper lawyer. Bateson's view was that I would, would go along with what Mockbell, Williams and others wanted. She might have mocked Detective Bateson, but deep down, she wanted to prove him wrong. She wanted to prove that she wasn't in the pockets of criminals. So in 2004, she worked with the hitman as he started to give up names and information to Detective Bateson. She helped the hitman roll. He was the first person that broke his silence and he agreed to give evidence and to get a reduced sentence. Tony McBell and Carl Williams didn't know what her role was in this, but she'd secured the best deal for her client and she'd won the respect of police. For this briefest of moments, Nicola had everyone where she wanted them. And this is the point where, for a second, just for a second, it was working. The police were happy, Carl Williams and Tony Mockbell didn't know what she'd done, and she'd done right by her client, the hitman. But pleasing everyone was never going to work as a long-term strategy. Because the hitman was just the first person of many to roll. I guess he was the, the first crack in the wall, figuratively speaking, that a number of people followed after him. Two big players would soon follow, like dominoes. The code of silence was breaking down, and it would soon threaten the entire empire that Carl Williams and Tony Mockbell had built. 
But with more people coming forward, that'd mean more secrets for Nicola to keep. Um, If they sought to speak to me, then that made life even more complicated for me. That leak in the damn wall of silence that Nicola and the hitman had made, that leak was about to turn into a flood. And Nicola would be swept away in it. In the next episode, a drug house burglary smells of police corruption and a police informer is executed. Nobody deserves to be shot in the fucking head. The, the fact that he was murdered wasn't a great surprise. Who knew who did it? Oh, well, I'm not going to say here. Season two of Trace, The Informer, is hosted by me, Rachel Brown. My reporting partner is Josie Taylor. Supervising producer for post-production is Tim Roxborough. Our producer is Yasmin Parry. Producer for the 7.30 interview was Chris Gillette. Camera, photos and sound on that interview by Greg Nelson. We get production support from Will Ockenden. Fact-checking and research by Alexander Tai. And our sound design and theme composition was done by Martin Peralta. Additional music by Superspy, Nicole Carroll, Jacob Richards, R. Domain, Land Systems, Lost Few, Lincoln J.K. Weber, Edo and Arnold, and Martin Peralta. If you like Trace, leave us a review wherever you get your podcast and subscribe to get new episodes as soon as they land. 